I would tell people years later, like, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you work at a company where the CEO is wrong every day. And I hate being wrong. I want to be less wrong. So it's, it's never a good reason to do something because the CEO said, or because your manager said, here, we only want you to do something if you think it's the right thing to do. And if you don't think it's the right thing to do, loyalty means saying that. Loyalty doesn't mean just doing it anyways and following the order blindly. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? Be a student of the game. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the pod. Hope you're having a good day wherever you're listening to this, whether you're on your way to work, at the gym, doing your thing late night and catching up, trying to grow your career, accelerate your business. Um, We're excited to have you. And I've got an excellent guest lined up. I am joined by Mike Vichik. Mike, welcome, man. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here, man. Thanks for hosting me. Excited to have you. Excited to unpack your story because it's been a a wild ride uh, for you and, you know, I'll just kind of dive right into it. For our listeners, uh, Mike is the co-founder and CEO of Wisely. Uh, He then sold that to Olo uh, for $187 million in 2021. So congrats on that. Uh, And he's currently kind of contemplating his next move. uh, And yeah, you're married with three sons, live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, what else should people know about you? Uh, no, I think you got the the big stuff. Um, I'm looking forward to running it back. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing the second time founder thing, trying to not make mistakes I made the first time and also avoid the, the common traps of a second time founder. I think many people will try to be too cute. And I think at some point it's just a leap of faith you got to take. I don't think you're going to be able to wait. You're not able to analyze your way to figuring something in out you just got to dive in and start figuring it out so i'm trying to keep that in mind as well i love that and that's kind of largely the premise of this pod is just to you know give people the real behind the scenes look at you know how companies are built how people are building the revenue engines and you know that's certainly why i was excited to to get you on uh we have had your good friend juan george on the pod before so for any listeners who haven't uh listened to that episode it's super good KG's the man. He is. He certainly is. I got to hang out with him in uh, in Napa at our retreat recently, which was super fun. But yeah, so before we kind of dive into it, so we were catching up the other day and I uh, I said that it sounds like you have the sickness, uh, which many of us have who have built or <laughs> built companies or tried to build VC firms or whatever it is where you're you're thinking about starting the founder journey again, you know, from scratch. And I know you've been ideating on a few things. I won't, you know, make you uh, share what you're what you're thinking about. But how have you been approaching that ideating process? How have you been like validating ideas? I feel like entrepreneurs or all of us really have so many ideas. They're like, one day I'm going to do this, or I see this opportunity. How have you gone about sort of validating those as you think about your next move? Yeah, for sure. Well, we sold the company in November of 2021. Uh, and I left Olo in February of this year, uh, February of 2023. So I was there for about 15 months. And when I left, my wife and I had our third son in February, spent three months in dad mode. 
uh, not thinking about much. I did read some books, but it was, you know, feeding babies and changing diapers. That was, that was basically all I was doing. That, that was a good, like total decompression time, you know, from, from a work point of view. Um, then I think in May, June of this year, I started to take some meetings with people that I thought might lead to an interesting place, you know, for no real rhyme or reason. Um, and, and I also started talking to a bunch of second time founders, just trying to hear, you know, how they went about it the second time and some thoughts that they had, how they approached it. Um, and, and I, so that was kind of part of it. I think the other part of it was trying to do some self-reflection, right? Like what are, what are things that I would definitely do again on my next startup? What are the things that I definitely would not do again? And what are some things that I didn't do the first time that I want to try this time? And, you know, writing that list out in three columns. Um, and then I just every so often will run what I'm thinking about that day back through that framework and see if I'm stepping out of bounds on any of those things. Also writing down like my values, what uh, Charlie Munger from, you know, Warren Buffett's famed business partner uh, recommends that everybody write their eulogies. So I try to do that. Uh, you know, what do you want to be true at the end of your life? And they've been reflecting on that stuff and just having conversations with cool people that I thought might go someplace. I haven't heard that one. And I'm a, a pretty big Charlie Munger uh, fan. He's got a lot of good, uh, good one-liners and quotes for sure over the years, but writing your, your eulogy, I think that's a really cool exercise for all of uh, our listeners to, to do uh, and maybe even do it as like a executive leadership team or something could be cool and share bits of it. You mentioned, you said something there. I've, I've never heard anyone uh, with a newborn baby call it uh, decompression time. <laughs> <That's pretty laughs> well, it's our third one. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. We've, we've got it nailed. We know now. what we're doing at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Three boys, yeah. you know, we've seen this movie before. Yeah, love it. Awesome. Um, okay, so I want to dive in and unpack those that a lot of that self-reflection. And we'll do that kind of through, through the story of, you know, what worked, what didn't, what you would change. Uh, but, you know, fly me back to the beginning, man, of your entrepreneurial journey. What did it look like? When did you become crazy enough to think you could, you know, start your own business? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for asking that. I, so my, I left college in 2006 and was when I graduated at Michigan State Go Green. Rough time for any Spartans out there, though, uh, on a number of different levels. But left in 06, I was at Accenture until 2011. So five years and moved up quickly and, and proved to myself that I could, you know, do well at a, at a job out, out of school. Right. Um, and in lingering in the back of my mind was like, I, I want to start a company. Wasn't exactly sure what it was. Didn't have, didn't have the proverbial idea. Um, and so, you know, I think that made me stay at Accenture longer. One thing that happened was I led recruiting at Michigan and at Northwestern for the undergrad uh, group and recruited my co-founder, Tyler, from North, Northwestern to Accenture. And he and I worked together on a bunch of different projects. And we were in the office late one night and thought we had a particularly genius idea, which, by the way, we did not. Uh, but we <laughs> thought we did. And, and I was like, you know, we should really think about how we tell this to our client. And he's like, why don't we just leave and start that company instead. And I'm like, huh, that's like a pretty cool idea, actually. So we started thinking about that. Um, that idea ended up not going anywhere, but it gave us the courage to kind of jump out of the plane. So I left in September. I took a part-time consulting gig 
where I worked three days a week for a guy that I used to work for at Accenture. And then I had the other four days a week to like, you know, figure out what I was going to do next. And then we ended up raising money for Wisely or what, what evolved into Wisely in April of 2012. So it was about an eight, seven, eight month period from when I left Accenture to when I officially started working on uh, what evolved into Wisely. So, and then he, mm-hmm. he left around that same time as well. I feel like that's uh, good advice for founders there. It's like, as you're kind of in this ideating phase is, you know, you need that focus, but you also don't want to be super worried and strapped that there's no money coming in the door. So taking like, it's easier now to get like fractional work and consulting, you know, especially if you have some experience under your belt um, and can give you, I imagine, a little more breathing room. You didn't have to rush. Um, and then when you found that that idea, you could sort of go go all in. Definitely. I think the not rushing point is super key, by the way, like that that um, product market. People all talk all the time about product market fit, but I would also say it's product market timing fit. Um and so it's really hard to to rush that. I mean, I think you, I would rather take longer to find really strong product market fit than have kind of okay product market fit and start going. So if you have the ability to kind of delay the, the starting gun, uh, I think that is beneficial in many cases. Do you have any uh, exercises or ways you evaluate product market timing fit? Um, is it just a natural market pull? Like, I guess, how would you differentiate than the typical, you know, product market fit? Yeah. Uh, it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about recently. Um, some of it, having, having seen this before, some of it is just spidey sense, right? I, I know how hard or not hard it was to sell the various products that we offered at wisely. And so I, I saw that, right. I saw kind of when you talk about a problem, how, eager to solve it, people are. And then when you propose a solution, I saw whether they were like, oh, wow, I need that now. And and they start pulling the next steps out of you versus, oh, that's kind of cool. That's really helpful. I, I, that would be valuable for me. All the words that people say because they don't really want to, you know, hurt someone's feelings or tell a founder that it's, that it's not that big of a pain point. But uh, I think, so there's a bit of spidey sense, but I think if you made me put uh, a metric on it, the, the challenge is like when you first ship something, you don't really have it. You have no retention data, right? You have no, mm-hmm. you, you have no gross or net retention data because it's that you, you won't have that for years or a year and a half probably. So that isn't it. Um, you don't really yet have legit uh, like NPS data of like how people would describe your product usage data even might be very nascent. So I, I think the most, that what I would argue is, and this comes from uh, Sam Altman blog post about product market fit, but uh, I think he, he argues that uh, the, the earliest indicator of solid product market fit is are people using the thing that you built, sharing it organically with their friends through word of mouth. And, and if you start getting, you know, if you're using the thing, Scott, and then Max sends me a note and says, hey, can I use that thing? Like, that would be an indicator that it's really working is people sharing it just, you know, with their, their community. And that resonates with me too. Cause that's, that's what I've done when I've found something that's awesome. Um, yeah. So that would, that's my take on it. I like that one. And it's pretty simple to track, you know, you just track basically like referrals, people that are coming to you that someone else is, is recommending or introductions yeah. that you get. Um, yeah. The offline part I think is, a, is a little harder. But you can piece that together, right? Because you're probably talking not that many customers. 
especially in a B2B thing. So if I, if I see Max fill out the lead form and I go look him up on LinkedIn as a buddy of Scott, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, did yeah. you guys talk about this? Um, and so you can, it's kind of analog, but that's a one way to track it. Yeah. And then just, you know, being super, uh, paying careful attention to the language people are using. I think, you know, we have a lot of revenue leaders that listen to this and we've all been on demos or presentations and there's a difference between that like wow moment and you can feel their body language like changing and they're no longer typing emails anymore and they're, they're locked in you know versus you know just kind of going through the the motions um yeah for sure you can definitely definitely tell and the the trick of that is like there's a richard Feynman quote the easiest person to lie to is oneself uh so as a as a founder you really 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 want the thing to work um so i think there's there's a bias toward being optimistic oftentimes and so i i try to check that and and try to eject pessimism into my own thinking like do you really say that why exactly like what would you do if this thing didn't exist questions like that um my my co-founder tyler has a good line he says uh it's not customer discovery if you leave the conversation disappointed. That's sales. So in the early days, you shouldn't feel disappointed. Otherwise, it seems like you're, you've got a solution that you're trying to push rather than just understand the problem. Yeah. So if I'm hearing that right, it's like you're doing so much discovery that you get to a point where you're like, oh, this, is, this isn't like perfect, but we can make this work. Is that kind of what I'm, what I'm hearing? Yeah. I mean, if you, do, if you have conversations with a bunch of people, I think it's natural to start you know, forming an opinion on how that might be solved, right? Yeah. And then and then you kind of gradually move into selling that thing or selling that solution. And and then if you feel people saying like things that, that disappoint you about it, like that's not my number one priority or I already solve it decent enough over here because of this other thing, that's where the disappointment can creep in. And and that is just like a little alarm bell that should go off in someone's head. Like I'm actually not uh, doing customer discovery now, I'm selling. And that's fine, but just know that that's what you're doing. And I think in the early product market fit times, you want to err toward discovery. No, that's that's great. I like this idea too of like injecting pessimism in your own thinking as well to really like make sure um, you're seeing things clearly. And that's a good line. Easiest person to lie to is oneself. Uh, very, very true. All right. Walk me through the Wisely story. Uh, you know, every founder starting a business, you know, dreams of this outcome selling for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Like that's, that's, that's the dream. But how did that dream actually come to light? It was painful, man. I mean, we, the first four and a half years, so we started the company April 5th of 2012 until Labor Day of 2016, we did not have any semblance of product market fit at all. Uh, we launched and killed three different consumer apps, um, and none of them worked. I, and we were very, very close to quitting, uh, a number of different times and ran out of cash. Like there was one point where we had $11 in our company bank account. Um, and, and like my wife was at the grocery store a couple of times and our credit cards didn't work. Like we were, we were that close to quitting and, you know, we, we just felt like the stuff we were building was getting better. Like the quality of the software we were building was getting better. And we hadn't, you know, we hadn't like figured it out yet. If, if, if the way I kind of think about it is like the slope of the line was up, but we were still underwater. So we couldn't breathe yet. But we kind of, we kind of said like, okay, 
if you take time out and we keep improving, at some point we'll come above the water and we'll figure it out. Um, so we just kept getting better. There was actually a Jim Collins uh, talk where he talks about the Stockdale paradox. Um, have you heard this? I haven't. Walk me through it. So it's basically this guy who was the highest ranking, and I might miss mess up some of the details here, but uh, a guy who was the highest ranking military official who was uh, a POW in the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. And what he said was that it's the optimists who died. Um, and, and the way he tells the story, which was counterintuitive to me, because I would have thought the optimists were the ones that made it out. Um, and, you know, the way he tells the story is that the optimists set goals and deadlines they're like oh we'll be out of here by christmas and christmas would come and go and then they'll say oh we'll be out of here by next christmas though and next christmas would come and go and eventually they just lost hope they they said we're never getting out of here and when you lose hope you know they went to a, a dark place um and so his his uh mental model was one that really resonated with me during those times of wisely that were really painful was you know have an unwavering faith that you will figure it out. And going through that process will become a defining story of your life. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, the story that I wanted to be able to tell was, yes, it was hard, but we kept moving. We kept trying to solve the next problem and we kept making forward progress. Uh, and, and I thought we'd eventually figure it out. So that, that was kind of like inspiration behind the scenes. And then, you know, in 2016, when we ran out of cash, we actually just fully dropped all the consumer stuff we were going to do. I, I sent out a list. Uh, I, I bought a list uh, and sent out an email to like 3,700 people in restaurants. I mean, a ridiculous percentage of those emails bounced, but, um, but basically was not selling any particular product that was talking about why it mattered to know who the guest was and to know their behavior and know what their preferences were. So we got a, a few, uh, email responses to that email. One of them was from the co-founder and CEO of a restaurant group on the East coast called Bartaco. And he was like, Hey, I love that idea. Uh, we, we have a waitlist system right now that doesn't have a CRM in it. So I could have my number one customer walk in and we wouldn't, we wouldn't be any of the wiser unless someone personally recognized them. And that's, that's not what we want, right? We want to be able to make sure we're consistently, recognizing the, the guests who are our best customers. Uh, and by the way, recognizing people who are new to us. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so it was, it was, you know, it was about personalizing the experience, no matter if you were a first time diner or, you know, someone who's been in a bunch. And, and so that conversation started maybe in March or April of 2016. Uh, we wrote our first line of code of in May and we had, and this is a process I'm repeating now with, with startup number two, is we had them sign an LOI, so a letter of intent. It was non-binding, but it basically said, hey, here's the spec of what we're going to build. It's going to do A, B, C, D, E. Um, and here's the schedule of how we're going to work on it. Here's, here's the involvement we need from your team. And when we deliver this thing, you agree to pay us $220 per location per month, I think it was. And they said, sure, we'll sign it. And it was no risk to them. They didn't have to fund it. And then in you know September, we shipped the first version of it. Uh, over Labor Day weekend, and it and it worked. And then they rolled it out to the remainder of their restaurants, and then we just kept, you know, selling and building, selling and building, and that was the beginning of the flywheel. So from basically January of 2017 through 2021, um, we got to about 10 million in car, um, and 
by just repeating that same thing. It broadened from waitlist to basically a CDP and a CRM for restaurant brands with marketing automation built into it. Um, where our key differentiator was like we focused on the lifetime value of the customer, not just not just you know trying to get people to sign up for a loyalty program or something, but actually who are your best customers? How do you find more of them? How do you retain them? How do you keep them coming back? I'm excited to dive into you know the successful part of that journey, you know, 2017 and, and beyond. Um, but quickly want to touch on you know 2016. You run out of cash. Uh, it sounds like you had the right mindset, right? This idea of unwavering faith and this will be the thing that you're defined by it's going to define the story of your life so i love that that mindset but as as leaders you need to infect your team and those like around you with that same mindset and almost shelter them um from what's going on what were some of the strategies i guess you used to compartmentalize you know you have your wife literally sometimes not able to buy groceries like walk me through that as a leader uh, and i think it's really relevant Right now, there's a lot of things going on in the world, and and it's it's an interesting time. And and leaders, we need to find a way to sort of stay focused and, and motivate our teams. So, how did you find ways to do that? Well, you're totally right. The people around you make all the difference. And I think had a couple of things gone differently for for us, it would have been game over. Like for example, I I did not want. I was clear that I did not want to get a divorce over the company, and I, I wasn't going to do that. So. You know, if there ever became a point where my wife was like, this isn't working for me anymore, I would have shut it down. Um, I just know that. And I'm, and I'm insanely grateful to her for being supportive. And, and we worked through stuff. Like there was one time where I was pitching, like, like you said at the beginning, I live in Ann Arbor. And there was this thing at the law school. It was called Ann Arbor New Tech Meetup. And I plugged my phone into the screen. I was about to do a demo. This is like 2015, late 2015. And my phone is projecting on the screen behind me. And, and all of a sudden, I'm introducing myself. I'm Mike, whatever. And people start laughing. And I'm like, what's so funny? I didn't say anything funny. And I turned around and, and I forgot to mute my messages, right? So right before the message from my wife went away, it said, are you coming with me to therapy tonight? <laughs> and that was in front of like a few hundred people. And some, you know, half the audience was horrified for me. The other half was like, you know, laughing out of awkwardness. And, and I just said, look, like starting a company is hard. And I think you have to be willing to talk about what's not going well. And I believe that my relationship with my wife will be better for it. You know, we're going to work through our problems and not ignore them. And, uh, and so, you know, people in the audience clapped. But I think that same mindset applied, you know, obviously with my wife, but also with my co-founders too. Um, you know, we, we, we were... We were like basically four people at the time. So, you know, it wasn't like we had 20 people we had to convince. It was just four of us. And we ended up redistributing some equity to people um, because we felt it was the right thing to do. And it made sense. They they needed to wake up every day and feel like this was the right decision for their lives as well. And um, and so that, you know, that was the thing that we did during that time. But, you know, it was about aligning the incentives just to make sure that you know, it was the right actual decision for everyone. And then we had, I think, like, there was a important, that was an important moment for me, because up until that point, I hadn't really failed at something in, in my life or my career before. And my identity was the company's success, or it was the company, right? And the company was objectively a piece of shit at the time, like, it was. <laughs> so I'm like, 
wait a minute, my identity is the company and the company is a piece of shit. Does that mean I'm a piece of shit? Uh, I don't think so. I'm like trying really hard and trying to do the right thing, but it, and it's just not working. So that was a painful separation, but it ultimately, I think, became a superpower of, of the company where I would tell people years later, like, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you work at a company where the CEO is wrong every day. And I hate being wrong. I want to be less wrong. So it's it's never a good reason to do something because the CEO said or because your manager said, here, we only want you to do something if you think it's the right thing to do. And if you don't think it's the right thing to do, loyalty means saying that. Loyalty doesn't mean just doing it anyways and following the order blindly. Loyalty means speaking up and saying, like, I actually disagree with this, this decision. I don't think it's going to work for this reason. And then one of two things happens. One, you save the company in some way right? Because we were about to make a bad decision and, and we changed our course based on your input. Or there was something that you believe that that turned out not to be correct. And so that was an educational opportunity that once we, you know, shared something about the approach or the strategy or the why we were doing whatever it was, that unlocked the step change in you, right? Because now you understood something that you previously didn't. And if you iterate through that for years and years and years, um, then I think that be, that builds a really strong culture around critical thinking. And um, that ultimately became a superpower for us. And it was something that we we put into every, you know, job uh, interview that we every person we were hiring, we were trying to make sure that they would disagree respectfully with their, you know, with their leaders. Um, and the measure of success was like, you know, could a new salesperson or a new BDR on an all hands, could they raise their hand and ask the VP of engineering why we're doing that that way, right? And vice versa, could a new engineer uh, or a new designer ask the CRO, hey, why why does that make sense? You know, that was the sign of, of a healthy tension and healthy critical thinking. Um, so that was, you know, one of the gifts of that, that, that dark period. And I hope that, you know, to the, to the point about it becoming a defining experience in my life, that was probably the most central thing that I learned during that time. Decoupling our, our self-worth from, you know, our achievements is is very, very difficult and tough to do, uh, particularly people with, you know, what we call the sickness or very driven, you know, type A folks. Um, and, you know, your ability to do that and then be comfortable, you know, telling the team how often you make mistakes. And, you know, that created this culture I think people don't speak up a lot of the time because they're worried about being wrong. And if you create this culture that embraces, hey, the mistakes are how we're going to learn, and that is how we learn. Arguably, you know, you learn a lot more from a mistake than you do from getting it right. And you cycle that through an entire organization, the speed at which you're learning is just growing, you know, exponentially. Uh, For sure. And I think, you know, one thing that I felt myself doing in other roles I've been in in my career is like, I, I wasn't in the meetings that the person to whom I reported was in, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, if I report to someone who's on the executive team, I assume that, let's say it's the CRO, that that CRO is seeing all the things, right? Like they're talking to finance, they're talking to product and engineering and design and people. And so they, they have a different perspective that I have. So despite I, I might disagree with a particular decision on this thing within revenue, but I don't know the context of like, there's a lot of other stuff going on. So, it's, you know, like you, people, I think oftentimes, rightfully so, give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, and what 
what we would say it wisely was forget all that stuff. We want you to disagree. We would rather you disagree and actually be proven incorrect than not disagree at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Because that's that assumption that there's all these other competing things that I don't know about, I think oftentimes causes suboptimal decisions to go through. And whereas if someone just questioned it, someone would say, oh, yeah, that actually makes sense. We shouldn't be doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the inverse can also be true. You know, this CRO might have all this context from all these other competing decisions, but you might have context from the customer or a few deals that you recently did that they're actually missing. And so you could be that missing, you know, puzzle piece that actually. Yeah. So we, we try to think about it like more as like a, a network of decision making rather than a hierarchy like that. That was something we worked very hard at doing, too. Talk me through that a little bit more. That that sounds interesting. So a network of decision making versus hierarchy. Yeah. I mean, in some companies, in some companies, if if like a sales rep directly messaged the product leader. And said, "Hey, I was just on a on a customer call, and you know this thing didn't land. And I think we need instead to build this other feature. Um, I think in a lot of in a lot of cases, the, the product leader would be like, "Work through your normal channels, please. You know, like go talk to this other delegate over here. And and then it just you know every time you do that, you play the telephone game. And then six weeks later, you know the the product leader hears." a 10th of what that initial person saw six weeks ago. So you get, you get lower fidelity communication, number one, and it takes way longer. So that was something that we tried to, to nip in the bud. There's a great Mark Andreessen quote that uh, cycle time compression is one of the most compelling forces that determine startup winners and losers, right? So any cycle from, you know, uh, putting something out on the marketing site to having that drive a lead to having that lead get qualified to discovery a demo to booked to live to revenue like all of those individual piece parts is a cycle time and it adds up you know and and it can totally change the the makeup of what the customer economics look like um so you know i think direct communication going directly to the person that can solve the problem is often the better way. And yeah, it does make things harder, especially for leaders, because you can get hit up, you know, in a lot of different ways, but that's a separate problem, right? Solve that separately, figure out a way to create the space for that to happen. I like the idea of cycle time compression. You can kind of look at every system and process you have and be like, how do we, how do we compress each crank of this flywheel? Yeah, exactly. For sure. Okay. So sounds like, you know, there's a lot of things that you got right in terms of culture, you know, this network of uh, kind of decision making versus making everything go through a hierarchy. Um, what else did you do right in like, you know, 2017, you have this LOI, you deliver it, it's starting to work. You're now figuring out how to make that repeatable and scalable. When you look back, like what were some of the defining things you did right, you think? We, we got one person, actually two, two critical board members, uh, you know, to join our board. One was the founder of Barteca, which was Bartaco and Barcelona Wine Bar. His name's Andy Forzheimer. Uh, he sold his restaurant company for $325 million. So he, he like knew the restaurant business inside and out. And then we had another person named David Cantu, who was the, one of the co-founders of a company called Hot Schedules which was like the largest uh, 
you know, labor and scheduling system out there basically that allowed in the early days, it was the first product that allowed two servers to trade their shifts at, at a restaurant, for example. Um, so we had, we had like the insider's view from the restaurant tours point of view, and then the insider's view from successful restaurant tech company. And that was a huge unlock, both in terms of understanding the market for me, but, um, but I think also making me a better CEO. Um, you know, I, I can't even list for you. There's like innumerable things that Andy chipped away and like helped me become a better CEO and challenged me. Um, so that was a big unlock for us. The other thing was, and so that was like 2017, 2018. Um, in 2021, I remember having the thought uh, that like, you know, every part of the company was like shaking. It was uh, like about to come off the rails. Like I imagine a, you know, a, a mine car going down the train tracks, like in a, in a gold mine or something. It's like, you feel like it's going to come off the rails at any second. That felt like marketing, sales, customer success, support, onboarding, product, engineering, finance, and people. It's like the whole thing felt that way. Uh, and I remember thinking like, I'm going to lose control of this thing. Um, and I had the thought, oh, I need a COO. That was like where my mind went. Um, and then I read a blog post called uh, something to the effect of like how to operate or the SAS cadence that David Sachs wrote. It was July of 2021. I had read that on like a Friday and that it like just it immediately clicked for me in a way that I was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I needed to read. The main takeaway from the blog post is that most functions inside of a startup operate off of a, a you know, kind of like a three month sequential rolling uh, basis. So sales and finance, his argument was make them operate on a fiscal calendar. So let's say January 1st to the end of March, that's when, you know, Q1 started and when it ended. Uh, he, and then in our company, as in most companies, product and engineering were on that same three month cycle. His, what he said was offset those by 45 days, right? So have the, the spring release start February 15th and end in the middle of May, right? And that may sound really basic and, and not uh, novel, but the thing that it did was uh, a few things. One is like from a product and engineering perspective, it put you know a lot of emphasis on getting the quarterly roadmap shipped because we were going to do a, a release event for it. We put a bunch of marketing behind it. Uh, we drove our customers and pr prospects to it. And if, it, if the thing wasn't done and we needed to demo it, like we were going to be in a tough spot. So it created like a compelling reason to get things done. And then we had a couple of weeks of a, you know, from an edge perspective, a little bit of a lull after that huge, you know, marathon sprint ended. Right. So that was one thing. But the other part of it that I think is probably more important is that it created absolute focus for the executive team for the first, you know, from like January 1st to the middle of Feb all the focus in the world was on, are we going to ship the release or are we going to, uh, are we not? And, and are we going to get enough people to come to our release event or are we not? And the focus was all around that. Then after that, it was okay, close the quarter, hit, you know, hit the sales numbers, right? And everyone's focus was around that product engineering. Like we had every leader on, in the company had like a deal that they were supporting just so that everyone was close to the customer. And then it just, it, so we were never more than 45 days away from like a major company milestone, either one related to product or one related to sales. And that was super helpful. 
Um, the other part, like specifically the benefit of that from the go-to-market team's point of view was we had this issue where a lot of our sales came in the back month and in the back two weeks and in the last day of the quarter, right? And that's scary. No one wants to be in that that mode. Um, so what what the, the release allowed was that in the middle of February, there was reason for our reps to be reaching out with and engaging all of our prospects, right? Because we had this event that we wanted to share all the new stuff that we'd created. So it gave them a non-salesy way to actually reach out to people and just invite them to come check out this session, right? It was a low commitment from them and they got to see what we were up to. They got to hear from other leaders in the industry who we brought to that release event. And so that that pulled forward, uh, you know, a lot of sales. And I think we did that five times from when I first read that blog post to when we sold the company and the, the chain, I'm still shocked by how quickly the, the brand of wisely developed during that time. Like we went from relatively unknown, nobody to a company that was seen as, Oh, these people are actually shipping a lot of really cool stuff. And I think it was, you know, that was one of the main reasons why that pace uh, kept accelerating. Why our brand kept getting stronger and stronger. That was an incredible breakdown and we'll try and wrestle up that, uh, David Sachs post. Uh, I do remember reading that uh, a while back, but I'll have to revisit it and we'll put it in the in the show notes. That's that's great, man. I, I love this idea of finding a way to have a non-salesy event action that arms your team halfway through the quarter to have this like compelling event to have a meaningful conversation um, that happens way before. You know, that's that's big. Um, and talk about just setting yourself up for success, you know, like who wouldn't want to sell in that organization of like, okay, now we have two compelling events instead of one. So I'm 50% more likely on paper to be successful. Exactly. Man, we could, we could probably dive into that more and more, but I do want to get to a listener question. And I think this one, I think you're going to have a great take on it. And it kind of goes full circle um, from what we were talking about at the very beginning about like product market fit. Uh, and the question is, uh, this is from a founder. Uh, once you felt you had product market fit, what were the first things you did to try to accelerate your growth? And then in parentheses, they put, we have limited cash to work with. Um, well, what comes to mind there is um, is kind of the transition from founder-led sales to building a sales machine, right? Um, and I would say, first of all, we, we didn't, I, I did, because we had not found product market fit for four and a half years, when we found it, I kind of didn't believe it. So, so I was late. I think I was probably six to nine months late, uh, where like we actually had product market fit, but I, but I wasn't acting as though we did. And so it was that board member, Andy, that I told you about who challenged me on that. And he's like, look, like you're selling the same thing repeatedly over and over again. Like that's product market fit. Right. And I'm like, yeah, actually I think it is. And, and people were happy with the product. So, uh, number one, I would say like, you know, maybe you, it's, it's, if, if it took you a while to get there, maybe you have it a little bit earlier than, than you thought you did, because we did have that thing that I described where people were re- referring their friends to it. Uh, so that's like one thought. But I think, you know, the second one is how you move sequentially from founder led sales to building a sales machine. I think basically like, I, I believe that if the founder can't sell it, no one's going to, number one. So, do that first. Then I would bring in two reps and I would work with them until they were both 
selling it repeatedly, right? And there's the good thing about that is there's no training program at all. It's literally here's a bag of rocks, hit the deep end <laughs> and jump in, right? Um, there's no training, there's no onboarding, there's no infrastructure, there's nothing, right? You have an email account and maybe that's it. Um, so those initial two reps, they learn through osmosis, right? And, and then you're able to replicate that. Then I would hire a sales leader to replicate those two reps, right? What made them successful? Who are they? What's their background? What's the ACV type? How long's the cycle time? You know, who are the customers they're closing? How hard is it to sell actually, right? And then the sales leader will evaluate all those things that I just said and build out a team that can do that. And that's kind of the one, two, three step of how I would go from founder selling to not founder selling at a high level. Um, You know, I think kind of implicit in that, uh, in the question was like, we're kind of strapped for cash. So what do you do when like, you can't just hire your way out of it? Um, you know, I, I think in terms of payback periods on this stuff, right? Like, cause on the one hand you're to, to spend more money, to burn more money, you're diluting the cap table, um, cause it takes more cash. So basically if you can make the argument that, uh, and I don't, I also don't think in terms of annual comp, it's like, you know, if I pay just for the sake of easy math, 120 K all in for a person, that's 10 grand a month, right? So if I expect that it's going to take this person three or four months to ramp up, that's a thirty or forty thousand dollar investment. Then they hit their quota, right? So if they're if they're uh, you know their base is one hundred and twenty, that puts their all in comp at let's say two forty, and you want your quota to be ten x their total comp. So let's just call it two million. And you know, back of the envelope math, like you know, how long is the sales cycle? And you can start to build a, a little model. In, in your mind of like how long it'll take for that particular rep to pay back or that particular marketer or whatever. I think generally speaking, any high performer is accretive if you give them six months, right? Like they, meaning like they will benefit the company more than they cost uh, after six months. Um, so you just got to figure out, I think if, if you have a, a smaller amount of cash to work with, that means you have to sequence more things rather than doing it in parallel. And that I think works, you know? Um, so that would be my, my advice in that particular situation. Great advice and super prescriptive, you know, the three-step process makes total sense. Um, I guess the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll say on that is those two initial reps, any advice on triangulating excellence? Like, did, did you get those two reps initially? Right. Uh, did you have to let one go? Cause it, it feels like, a lot of this process hinges on those two, you know, having some sort of success. Um, talk me through how you got those right, or maybe you didn't, what you learned. First one, I, I totally got got it right, but I think it was more luck than skill. Uh, the, the person was just a really phenomenal prospector and a student of the game, both of sales and of restaurants. Uh, so when they reached out to someone, they were able to be credible. That, that One of my, my mentors said, there's four sales inside of every sale. The first one is credibility. The next one is there's got to be a need or a want there. The third one is the value to price ratio has to make sense. And fourth, there's got to be urgency. And if you don't have any one of those four, you don't have a sale, right? So as a founder, you're, you have a new company, there's no halo of credibility. The, the only way, the only place credibility comes from is from your ability to create it on the fly, dynamically, asking good questions, being prepared, you know, having the founder title, like those things all bring credibility, right? But 
when you start with those those next two reps, you know, some of those things, like they have to be able to ask good questions. They have to be able to create their own credibility and they don't have the founder title. So in many ways, it's harder for those next two reps than it was for for you as the founder. Um, so, you know, for us, it, I think it largely depends on the ACVs that you're dealing with too, like to determine who the prototype is. Um, you know, in our case, around that time, the company, the ACVs were maybe 80 to 100K-ish and they kept going up over time. But, you know, someone who sold in that sort of a space before that, you know, ACV range, I think that's key. Um, you know, I think something that, that has the sales cycle in terms of time is another key part of it. Um, so you can, those are things you can interview for, but then I think there's just like, you know, hustle, tenacity, this, this first person we hired, his name was Eric and he was amazing at outbound, like way better at outbound than I was. Uh, and he was, he was a machine about it. So he was able to generate more, you know, uh, discovery calls and, and he would bring me to those and we'd tag team them together. So, you know, so those were some of the things. And then, um, we, we didn't nail every early hire, but you know, we got, we got enough of them down. I also screwed up the, the VP of sales thing too, a couple of times before we got it right. Um, but you know, there's a, there's a great Jason Lemkin post on that one. Uh, the 48 types of a VP of sales, I think is, you know, something related to the, the blog post title. And it basically talks about how, depending on, on your revenue, what you need from a, a sales leader is different in the very early days. You know, you need someone who can like kind of sell and who can, you know, understand why these two reps are working in the later days. I think he calls it Mr. And Mrs. Dashboards. Right. And there's a whole gradient in between there. Um, building systems, building infrastructures in, in one of the steps in the middle. So you got to kind of know what you're looking for as well there. That's great. Thanks for breaking that down. And uh, again, we'll pull up the 48 types of VPs of sales. I remember you're, you're quoting some good stuff on this one. I remember that, that post <laughs> as well. One to, for me to revisit again. Um, all right, man, final two questions. And thank you so much for, you know, sharing your entire journey. It's, uh, it's truly incredible. And I hope folks are learning a lot from it. I know I've got a, a page of notes right here. Um, final two questions. I always keep the same. They're intentionally vague. You can reiterate something we already talked about or highlight something completely different. Uh, but what's one thing revenue leaders uh, believe to be true, you know, a tactic or a strategy that you think is bullshit or no longer relevant or serving us? My mind goes to being sold myself, right? And, and having sat through sales processes before. And I can't tell you the number of times I get like, oh, could we book you know, time to have a 15 minute intro call. And it's like, for what, you know, like what, what problem are you trying to solve? And, and, or it comes off like, let's be friends. And what I would tell our sales team is at this point in my life, I have enough friends, right? I'm not looking for new friends, actually. Uh, the people who've become close friends of mine over the last five to 10 years it, it often started in a professional context where I learned something from them. They taught me something new or changed how I thought on a particular thing. And that created the, you know, kind of the credibility where like, wow, this person's actually uh, legit and it's going to help me grow. There's someone I want to be in my life moving forward. So I think if I had to put it succinctly, it's there's kind of maybe not, I don't know how contrarian this actually is, but a lot of people think, you know, relationships causes sales. Um, and I guess that's true, but I don't think you can start with like, let's be friends. I think you have to start with learning 
So learning causes relationships, causes sales is how I talk about it. So yeah, that's why discovery calls are so important is you're trying to figure out, you know, not only am I qualifying this, but like, what does this person believe that isn't exactly true? And how can I, how can I ask them the right questions to be able to like make that clear to them in a respectful, you know, kind, uh, professional way. So I think that's kind of the key thing. It's learning causes relationships, causes sales. I like it. And in that instance that you talk about where people are asking for this, you know, 15 minute intro, how would you switch that to make it more of, you know, a teaching conversation that allows you to showcase, you know, uh, or teach? Yeah, I think it's, um, some of it is just, and I don't think there's anything like too rocket sciencey here, but it's like, make it about them, not about you. Right. So make it buyer focus, not seller focus. So for example, one of the things we did was we had, you know, for every restaurant group out there, we had their tech stack as we could find it out based on looking at their website. So depending on who your competitor was, we might ask in the email, Hey, I noticed that you were using XYZ system. Um, are you totally satisfied with how it blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, are you totally satisfied with how it captures and enables you to collect customer data? Right. And we knew that the answer was no, but nevertheless, we would ask it. Right. So that's one way is like, you know, figuring out, it's kind of putting a line in the water. Like, is there, is there pain here? Um, I think the other one is, you know, uh, is more problem oriented. Right. So for example, uh, hi there, Scott, I noticed that you opened 20 new restaurants last year and you're you know you're north of 100 now and you raise private equity financing congrats on all that uh we've got you know we've seen customers of ours when they hit that you know that plateau here are some of the challenges they have they start to have a really fragmented tech stack and none of the things talk you know are you satisfied with how well your tech stack is talking you know um to the other systems and and again we knew that a lot of times the answer was no right so you know, that making it more about like a, you know, the buyer rather than like we sell CDP and CRM for restaurants. Everyone puts that stuff in the, in the, you know, in the recycle bin. And it sounds like when you sent out that, going back to your story of like the email to 3,600 people, that's why you got this response that ultimately changed the business as you focused on why it mattered to them versus your product, you know, functionality and features. Yeah. And I bet if we went, if we pulled up that email now, uh, I'd <laughs> Would be embarrassed you by it, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But yes, it was like the very early versions of that idea. Yeah. What's the, as a quote, I can't remember what, it, but it's something along the lines of like, if you're not embarrassed by the, like the you or the stuff that you did, like five years ago, you're not like, growing or evolving quick enough. So, you know, you totally. just, we'll just say yeah. you, you learned a lot since 20, 2016. That feels like, that feels like me. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Fi final question. What's one thing that's working for you right now in the go-to-market sense? Um, you know, I know you're kind of in between, you're ideating. So it's an interesting time yeah. for you, but what's one thing that's working or, or working for any companies that you're kind of uh, a part of? Well, what's working right now for me, like, uh, you know, very, very early days of incorporating another company. Uh, we filed the incorporation stuff a couple weeks ago and we've been jamming on. on Congrats. A, thank you. Uh, it's it's different uh, the second time around. But um, so, you know, what we did was I, I've had hundreds and hundreds of calls with people around the space, like our potential customers, their customers, people who are like influencers or consultants in that whole thing. 
um, just to understand like the, the view, cause it's not in restaurants, what I'm working on next. Right. So it's a different industry. And if I've learned anything, one, one of the things I've learned is that anytime you sign up for a new learning curve, i.e. a different industry, it's good for probably two years worth of kicks in the teeth. And, you know, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to get up that learning curve as quickly as possible. And so just talking to tons and tons of people from that experience, we, I think naturally started to figure out some common pain points and came up with a, a proposed solution to it. So now when I'm talking to potential customers, it's it's shifting more into like a like a sales conversation rather than a customer discovery one. And and I will legitimately say, you know, if I think it's a good fit, like I would love for you to be a first customer and I would love to sell you vaporware. Full stop. Like usually you don't like usually selling vaporware is a bad thing, right? But I'm like, I would love to sell you vaporware that is an LOI, letter of intent, that says, you know, here's the problem statement. We'll define it succinctly. Here's the product spec that we think solves that. Um, And here's some thoughts around timeline and pricing. That way, everyone's on the same page. And it makes it concrete what you're going to do, right? So with that, it's a one-pager. We're able to sign people up on, on LOIs. And I think, you know, pretty close to having a couple hundred K of of ARR committed on, on like a, an LOI. And then once that's there, we will go build it. And, and we have confidence after having built all the stuff we built with wisely, we have, we have confidence that we can go build software. That's not a question for us. And I think in, in many ways, it's, it's also not a question for the potential customers because they can go see what we did with wisely. Um, so the hardest part is making sure that you're really, really precise and defining the problem well, and then you have that spec that is the the fewest number of things that you would need to do. Hopefully, it's just one, two, or three things that, that the product would do to solve that problem, and then you build it, and people pay. So that's that is is working for us, um, you know. And and we're trying we're trying to strike the right balance between like getting all. I, I think it needs to be a very limited set of people, like you know, certainly no more than ten customers, maybe more like five. Right. And so we're picking three or so that are, that are part of like one customer profile and then one each from a, an adjacent customer profile. Cause we want to make sure that what we're building uh, is, is like more broadly applicable than just this one tiny little niche. We want to focus on this niche. So once we ship the first version of it, we will double and triple and quadruple down in that niche. But we also, we also want to make sure that, that the scalability of the idea is there as well. And that's something one of my investors from wisely said, he's now a VC um, at unusual ventures. But uh, you know, I asked him what, what is second time? What do founders not usually get right about their startup ideas? And he said, he will find one of two failure modes. Oftentimes there's, you know, there's no vision at, at like a high level. Like if we're successful, this will change. And this is like a really big idea. Um, so the ideas are often not big enough in his view. Um, the second part he said was that if they have a a big idea, there are sometimes not a, there's no path to getting there, right. For a startup, it, you need to have certain things that the startup doesn't have. So basically his, what he said is you got to have like a a concrete path of how you're going to get to this desired end state. And you have to be able to kind of plot it out at the beginning, um, and if you don't have either one of those, you know, it'll be challenging. Um, in, in the case where you don't have the initial path, you'll never find product market fit or you won't hit material revenue. 
And in the case where, you know, you don't have a big enough vision, uh, you'll top out at 10, 20, 30, 40 million of ARR and it won't, it won't scale beyond that. And so, um, or it'll get harder beyond that, or maybe the market isn't big enough, you know, but, uh, so anyways, I'm trying to run those two, uh, clear both of those two hurdles by doing this LOI process the way I described. I mean, those last three minutes, any pre-seed founders or founders looking to, you know, start a business truly from scratch, like that's a, that's an incredible way to do it. You know, you're de-risking it for yourself, for, you know, your customers, because you built software before. And yeah, it's almost like you've got the demand before you build the the product. And I feel like that's going to be the future of a lot of businesses, uh, even in B2B. I think we saw it in B2C a lot where people will build like community or a big presence or a following or whatever it may be. And then they'll ask that audience what they want and then they'll just go build it. And we haven't really fully seen that happen in B2B. Sounds like you're embracing that, that model, uh, which is super cool. Well, Mike, this has been incredibly valuable. Uh, appreciate you spending the time, man. Um, if people want to follow along with you, um, learn more, connect, hear about what you're building, we to get some VCs. I'm sure you'll have some some people knocking on your door about this new idea. Uh, what's the best uh, place to reach you? LinkedIn, Twitter? Yeah, LinkedIn. I, I, I need to be better about Twitter. I'm a, I'm a constant lurker, but I don't I don't post much. Uh, but LinkedIn is is probably the best place to find me. Beautiful, man. Awesome. Uh, and for all those listeners who hung out with us, thank you so much. Uh, of course, I always say it, listening's one thing. Executing is very different. Uh, you know, Think about these, internalize them, go apply them to whatever you're building or helping scale right now. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, Scott. Take care.